Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, dean of faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with a guest that I've been looking forward to having on for a long time. Stephen argues the associate professor of youth, family, and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, received his PhD from Michigan State University, and is the author or co-author, along with Kara Powell, of a fascinating new book we're going to discuss today called Growing With. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Sean, it's so great to, to chat with you. Scott, it's great to hear uh, from you as well. Really glad to join you guys today. I'm such a fan of the work that you guys are producing at the at the Fuller Youth Institute, the Sticky Faith. You've been working on that for a while and Growing mm-hmm. Young. And this book in particular, Growing With, the title just fascinated me. What does the title reveal about what makes this book and your parenting approach to this generation unique? Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. Uh, and, you know, at the Fuller Youth Institute, I think one of the goals that we have is we're always thinking about the research that we're doing and thinking about how we turn that into resources. And uh, as I know that both of you know, uh, good research begets more questions, which leads to more research, right? So uh, I think that Growing With really came out of the work that we've been doing, as you mentioned, through Sticky Faith and Growing Young. Uh, and it just leads to these really important questions about faith longevity and young people. And we really want to help churches uh, and leaders uh, support young people in their faith development. But we also realized that there was something unique about the parent uh, growing child relationship that is unique in the literature, but also in the work that we've been doing. And, you know, as Karen and I wrote this, we, we really came at it in two ways. One is researchers, but also as parents. Kara's got uh, three kids in their teenage years. I have three daughters who are 24 and 22 and 19. So uh, this is more than just theory for us. This is uh, everyday uh, life for us. And Karen and I said, as we wrote this, you know, this is the book we wish we had when we were youth pastors. Uh, something uh, that was a resource to really help uh, leaders support parents as they're thinking about uh, raising their kids. And this idea of growing with was really crucial to us because we realized um, through our work, through conversations, through our research, that the parents, um, they're really wrestling with a couple of things. One is, I think they have a fear that their kids are going to grow away from God. Uh, and also there's a fear that they're going to maybe grow apart uh, from e- each other. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is just to say, you know, just because our kids are growing up doesn't mean that we have to give up. And it doesn't mean that we have are growing apart, but we actually can grow uh, with each other. And so we actually unpack this idea of growing with, and um, we really define it in this way, that growing with parenting is a mutual journey uh, of intentional growth for both ourselves and our children that trust God to transform us all. And if I could unpack that really quickly, we're just saying, look, it's a mutual journey. This isn't about um, just getting our kids to act a certain way as they're growing up, but it's about a journey that we're uh, in together uh, that's constantly changing. And there's this idea of intentional growth where we uh, need to seek new resources uh, rather than defaulting to old uh, par- uh, old patterns in our parenting or in our living. And it's for both ourselves and our children that we, as our kids are changing, 
uh, we as adults and as parents are changing as well. And we're trusting that God's going to transform us all, that this uh, this project of uh, of life, especially as parenting, does something where uh, God is working in each and every one of us. And there's a hope with that as well, that uh, tomorrow can be a better day than today and that we're trusting that God is doing a good work in all of us. Stephen, what I, what I think what I appreciate about your book and I think what you've done such a good job with, it's a great book about parenting, but a, mm. lot, of, a lot of our listeners are not parents. Yeah. Um, but, and I'd say to our listeners at this point, don't, don't tune this out yet if you're not a parent, because the book is yeah. also a really good discussion of the cultural background and the cultural mm-hmm. milieu in which students and young adults are growing up in today. Um, and I, and I love, I love the, the note of realism in the book. That you have, because early on you say, "Look, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's admit, as parents, we're not perfect. Let's admit we're not meant to be perfect, and neither are our kids." Yeah, uh, it's such that's such a helpful note of realism. Yet I don't hear people saying that that often anymore. Why did you start? Uh, why did you start here? Oh yeah, you know, I mean, part part of I think writing this book was probably as much as confessional as anything else. Mm. I, I I think that we. Um, as leaders, um, and even as uh, now as parents, both Karen and I have just realized that, you know, a lot of times the conversations that that parents are having are usually in sort of whispers in the corner of uh, of rooms. Uh, no one's really wanting to admit that. Uh, that this is hard, um, that they're, they're struggling, that they don't have a perfect, uh, family or a perfect kid, or they themselves are a perfect, uh, parent. And, you know, I just think that Karen and I, as we thought about this is that we didn't want this book to be one that we're piling on, like, Oh, here's another 10 things that as a parent, you need to be doing on top of the 10 other things that you're already not, uh, doing. And uh, I just think that what parents need is just sort of an honesty uh, with each other to kind of say, you know what, um, Parenting is hard. And as ministry leaders, uh, I would hope that we could take those conversations that are often in the corners of the room and actually bring them into the centers of our conversations where we can really kind of say to each other, hey, you know what? Um, This is really, really hard. Uh, Life is messy. Uh, As parents, we don't have to compete with each other. Why don't we stand down and admit um, that all of us are uh, muddling through, uh, through the uniqueness of our children and through our relationships. And let's create conversations in our churches where we can actually have those conversations rather than pretending like we're perfect. So, I, uh, you know, um, Scott, I love what you're saying. I think as uh, ministry leaders, I think we could take a, the lead in that. I think we can kind of say, hey, you know what? Uh, is we follow Jesus as individuals and as families in our relationships and everything else that we do. Um, let's just be honest about the challenges associated with that. And let's put that on the table. And let's, let's talk about that with each other rather than pretending that we, that we have it all, all together. And I think when that happens, there's just more generative conversation. And we actually can talk about the things that I think that our, the people in our congregations and especially our parents in this particular case really, really want to talk about. Um, and so for us, we hope that that, that statement just kind of speaks to our humanity and, uh, and sort of lays it on the table saying, hey, let's from one imperfect person to another, let's, let's figure this out and let's find some hope in that as well. Let me underscore how important that is. I was having a curbside conversation with one of my neighbors a few months ago who was suggesting that, uh, 
folks in our neighborhoods, you start to get together more often. And he had kind of a cynical response to this. He said, why would I want to get together with people and lie and have us lie to each other about how our children are doing? <laughs> what an admission. That is dead on. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, in some other uh, researchers have talked about this idea that we are in the middle of a scholastic arms race. We're, we're competing with each other, trying to somehow find the edge to somehow get ahead. And what we're actually doing is we're just creating uh, a place where we can't really talk with each other. And, you know, Scott, as you said, uh, we're just lying to each other rather than having these honest conversations. And then I think about the church. I'm like, why can't we be the community that communicates good news simply in the ways that we're honest with each other? How great would that be for our neighbors and for the people around us? So I, I'm with you 100% on that. Steve, one of the statements that you and Kara made is, quote, growing with parenting stems from our belief that today's generation gap is often wider, end quote. I'm a Gen Xer, and I remember people talking about how Gen X, the generation gap, is wider. People talked about that with millennials and now Gen Z. Tell me what you mean how it's often wider and why you think that may be the case. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, as as you know, in your study of culture, you know that generationally, there's always going to be some sort of gaps. But I think what we're seeing uh, over the course of time is that uh, not only are there uh, are there gaps intergenerationally, but, um, you know, some uh, theorists talk about this idea that there actually isn't intra-generationalism. And what's happening there is we're actually seeing that within our lifetime, relevance is turning over quicker and quicker. So where generations used to have some overlap and experience, now uh, we're finding that we're literally having to reinvent ourselves um, within our lifetime. So as a Gen Xer, and that's what I am as well, Sean, you can remember a time before the internet. You can remember a time uh, where there were things that you did um, that are completely irrelevant to the way that we live our lives now. And so this rapidly changing thing is happening technologically. Uh, we live in a global society. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a unique uh, time in life where I think this turnover is so much more quick that, um, that we just need to uh, recognize this gap. And I, I think that the, the point here isn't to debate whether it's happening or not. I think the point is, is to acknowledge that there is this widening gap. And, and then I think that leads us um, more toward empathy. We, we talk about this in the book that probably a phrase that I think older people think is helpful when they talk with younger people is to say, you know, when I was your age and, you know, I understand what they're doing there. They're, you know, I, I'm sure I've done it. You know, as, as older types, we want to tell people, hey, we're just trying to connect with you. But for a young person, that can also often not be a bridge, uh, but a, a barrier because when they think of when we were their age, that was light years ago uh, with regards to the way they're living their lives uh, now. And so uh, with that, I, I think just raises, you, you know, um, new challenges and uh, it forces us to ask some hard questions. And, you know, I, I think the way I try to tell especially older leaders and parents is this, is that I think because we live the teenage and young adult years, we think that we understand teenagers and young adults. And there's a little bit that we do. But I think when we were teenagers and when we were young adults makes all the difference. Um, for those of you that are interested, uh, out of Beloit College, they have something called the, um, the mindset list. And these sociologists actually every year talk about the incoming freshman class and what their life experience uh, is. And 
Um, and so it gives us perspective as to what are current events for them compared to the current events that we had when we were younger. And it's, it, they did it to help their teachers think about the illustrations they were using in their classes, but I think it's something um, quite telling. I was actually talking with a 30-something uh, person a couple of weeks ago, and he's, he leads a bunch of 20-somethings. And he said, yeah, he goes, I was talking about 9-11, and the people that I'm working with said, yeah, I was in kindergarten then. And he said, you know, for me, 9-11 was this moment as a teenager yeah. that, that rocked my world and changed my perspective. But for these 20-somethings, that's, that's ancient history. Not that it's not significant, but the impact of that event for some of us has a different meaning than for a previous generation. And again, I think, I think when we begin to just acknowledge that, it helps us sort of understand the starting points of, of each of the generations in our discipling, in our leading, in our parenting, in our working with staffs and everything else. Because you know, this, this gap is not only felt in parents and child, but I've talked with senior pastors that are like, I do not understand my youth pastor. You know, I mean, we feel, we seem <laughs> world apart and we, I'm not exactly sure how we're supposed to uh, connect with each other and vice versa. Right. So, I mean, we're feeling it in our church staffs as much as families as well. Stephen, this is, this is really helpful. And I think I'll, I think what it's what it's motivated me to do is to re- refrain from telling our, you and our listeners what what I didn't grow up with, uh, and what and what what the what the seminal events were that sort of changed my view of the world. Uh, yeah. You know, when I was in high school and college, um, and and my, you know my my kids are about the same age as yours. Um, yeah, and my 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 kids are twenty eight, twenty six, and twenty three. Yeah, um, and I you. You've got a, a great phrase in the book that 14 is the new 24, but mm-hmm. you also say that 28 is the new 18. Yeah. Um, since I've got kids that are not, I got one that's 28 and one that's not, you know, almost 24. Uh, <laughs> I'm really interested to know what you mean by that, because uh, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to guess at it. Uh, yeah. So t- tell me exactly what you mean, because those two phrases together sound, they sound somewhat contradictory. Exactly. And that's the effect we wanted to have. So think of this more symbolic, um, uh, but I do think it's rooted in some of the research and the thinking that we've done. So when we think of this idea of 14 is the new 24, you know, in many ways, uh, it feels like kids are growing up faster. And so there's sort of like a gas pedal, right? Life is moving faster. There's less institutional support. Families are working harder to make it. Um, we're just in a rush, rush, rush all the time. And so I think the kids are marinating in an environment where there's just so much pressure and anxiety. Um, you know, one study says that the 13 to 17-year-olds are more likely to report feeling extreme stress than adults. Mental health is one of the leading um, indicators right now of challenges for young people um, today, including um, suicide as well. And so, you know, what we're seeing here is that young people seemingly have to grow up quicker to make it in this world. And so the four, a 14-year-old can feel the pressures of maybe what pre- previous generation 24-year-olds felt. So there's this enormous amount of pressure and stress that uh, our younger teenagers are, are feeling. And at the same time, I think while our kids' journey toward adolescence is accelerated, there's also uh, this inverse uh, reality is true as well, that the typical 20-something in the U.S. is in the process of becoming adult has slowed down. I mean, a lot. It's, uh, they're getting married. Uh, the indicators for adulthood that we've used in the past are delayed. So five years later for marriage, 
having children, financial independence, finishing school. Uh, and part of this is not just choice. Part of this is just the realities of a world where it takes longer to grow up today. So uh, for, for many uh, of our our kids, Scott, uh, if you think about this, the 28 um, can be like the new 18, where in previous generations, 18 is kind of when you launched out into the world armed with your high school diploma um, and the hope of a good paying job that could buy a house and support a family isn't the case for um, 18 year olds now, let alone uh, mid 20s. And so you sort of have this acceleration and also this delay. And it's sort of this herky jerky movement that young people are trying to navigate in this especially third dec decade of life. And what's interesting about it is this, is that it raises new questions for emerging adults and young adults. Uh, but it also raises new questions for those who are in relation to them. And this is especially true in light of the book with regards to parents. So now there's all these new questions that parents have to think about. Like, can my kid live at home? Am I enabling something? What what does financial independence look like for them? And how do I support them? Um, how do I engage with them as they're figuring out their lives? I thought that at their early 20s, they would be settled down and on their way to starting a family, but that's not the case, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just raising a bunch of new questions that feel exactly as you say, Scott, uh, almost contradictory, but definitely herky-jerky. My father's spoken at about 1,200 universities, and he's told me that the questions that kids used to ask him in the 70s, 80s, and 90s have filtered to high school and even younger. So in a sense, yeah. 14 is the new 24. Yet, like you said, we're pushing these maturing life experiences even later, so kids are just left in this tension. I, I think the way you guys yeah. phrase this is so helpful to understanding the tension that this generation feels and really why maybe this – generation gap that we talked about is is wider than it's been in the past. Now, you use a term that seemed to grow around the time that millennials came on the scene, which the word adult, which is typically understood as a noun, has become yeah. a verb, and people are talking <laughs> yeah. about adulting. What does yeah. that mean, and what would it look like to help young people, quote, adult? Yeah, you know, uh, we didn't make up the term. If you go to your Twitter feed, you'll see that it's definitely been around for a while. And I, I think that adulting uh, has been used in ways to say, I think I'm starting to do adult things. And again, I think especially for those in the third decade of life, they're trying to navigate what that is because the scripts aren't as clear as they used to be. Um, sort of the lock and stock, go to school, get married, have children, uh, et cetera, it used to be much more linear, which isn't the case anymore. So it, it's sort of this interesting challenge to uh, actually figure out what that is. Uh, for us, and the way that we talk about it in the book, is we really wanted to focus in on two aspects of adulting. And the way we define adulting is really um, a young person's growth in agency as they embrace opportunities to shape the world around them. So this idea of agency is really important, right? They're beginning to step into uh, from a Christian perspective, who God has called them to be. And we looked at this in two particular ways, uh, and that would be with uh, relational adulting and vocational adulting. A lot of emerging adult research would suggest that there's really three things that emerging adults, which would be 18 to 29, are really trying to figure out in this third decade of life. And that is, uh, one is this idea of love or relationships, whether that's um, uh, the, a romantic partner or the friendships or the community that I'm a part of. There's also this idea of work or vocation. Um, how am I living into 
the type of job or career that really is congruent with my values. And then the other one, uh, which we talk about later in the book, is just this idea of belief or faith, right? So, um, so we just try to unpack really with the adulting, this idea of relational adulting and vocational adulting, saying these are really um, two key elements that emerging adults are trying to, uh, to work through. And I think that for parents, I think having conversations about these uh, important aspects are crucial as, especially as they're getting into their twenties. But I also think it's crucial for ministry as well. If you're uh, a pastor and you're thinking, gosh, what do we do for 20 somethings in our church, which is a question I get all the time. Um, I, I'm not going to give you programmatic advice, but I'll tell you this. If you're, if you're not talking about community and relationships and you're not talking about vocation and calling start there. Cause that's like, that's right in the sweet spot of what's always in the minds of emerging adults. Stephen, I, I so appreciate that emphasis on calling and vocation and how important mm-hmm. that is. I'm sure you're aware a lot of the best Barner research out there tells us that uh, students and young adults who have had meaningful connections between their faith and their vocation are several times more likely to stay connected to their faith and to their mm-hmm. church. Um, yeah. But make, making that happen... I think in the you know in a local church context or in a family context is a lot that's a lot easier in theory than it is in practice. How yeah what what are some of the ways that you have found to best help students and young adults meaningfully connect their faith with what they're going to do with the vast majority of their waking hours? Yeah, I think that that's a great great question, Scott. I, I think that you know, there's a couple of things that I might suggest. One is, you know, I think for adolescents, obviously they're still in school, and a lot of their lives, generally speaking, are taken up by high school and studying and all that comes with that. But I think I think that parents and mentors can really use that time to help them reflect on their experiences. Too often, I think the instinct is to fill the resume so that I can get into my next stage in life, which is often college or whatever uh, it might be. But I do think there's this moment where, especially in the adolescent years, where we can help them reflect on, well, what are they doing and what do they like and why do they like it? And um, out of the choices that they could make with the time that they have, why would they choose one thing over another? And so I think this critical self-reflection gives them a chance to begin to own and find their agency of what they truly like. Because I think what we're finding a lot of times is that worried parents, especially, um, overly prescribe the adolescent years so that when a young person leaves high school and goes to work or especially um, goes to college, they don't really haven't really thought about, well, what is, what's important to them? Uh, what, what do they love? What are their gifts? And, uh, and so there's this crisis moment for them because they've sort of done what their, uh, their parents or their mentors have told them to do, but haven't critically thought about that uh, themselves. And so I, I think that I think any sort of conversation like that is really great rather than assume. So let's just not assume that they're figuring that out. I think young people want to have that conversation. And that's just a really, really simple way. I think for, um, uh, for those that are older in their third decade of life, 20 somethings, um, I, I would just say this, uh, when I talk with ministry leaders, I usually get three questions uh, from them. The first one is, uh, where did all the young people go? Uh, huh. which is always a great, great question. Interesting. And then the, the, the second question is, how do we get them back? 
Um, which is a fair question. Um, if I'm really critical, I'd say in both those questions, who's doing the moving? It's the movement. <laughs> it's the young people, not the old, uh, older ones. Uh, but the third one is always really interesting. And they usually uh, ask me in whispered tones. They say to me, um, and if they do come back, uh, what are we supposed to do with them? And I just think, I think that's a really honest question. And I think the instincts sometimes, uh, Scott, I'm getting to your, to responding to your question here is, I think the instinct sometimes is, oh, we need another program. We need another college age ministry. We need another something to kind of keep it going. And my argument with that would be, I think we have to be really, really careful with that because what we're doing is, is if we're not careful, is we're perpetuating a form of youth group for an older group of people. And what we're implicitly telling them is the way we want you to relate to our community is like you did when you were a teenager. Uh, but we don't want that, right? We actually want them to engage the community uh, as, as an emerging adult, uh, someone that's growing into adulthood. So when it comes to vocation and calling, I think a better ministry approach would actually be more of a grassroots sort of effort to kind of say to um, those in their 20s, um, so where do you see hurting in the world and how are you going to use your gifts to, to solve it? And what can we do to help? Right. Um, how, what's, what's a vision that you have? And uh, let's talk about what it may look like to put a business plan together. And you actually do that. And we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to try to give you some resource to make that happen. And you come back and, and report that to us and tell, and tell us what you think. Uh, instead of providing small groups for a bunch of people in their 20s, uh, maybe we say to them, you know, you're old enough where you, we don't have to make friends for you. Who are the people that you're running with? And what does it mean for you to meet, to have intentional conversations? And we'll resource you along the way. If you need help thinking about books or different ways of approaching that, that's fine. But I think you know, I think you know who you're running with and what can we do to help? You see what's happening is, is we're changing the agency and it's allowing them then to step into that. And then I, the other thing I'd say is I just think that those in their 20s looking for mentors to talk about what it means to live uh, their mm. Christian life into uh, the, the school because they're a teacher, into the office because they're a business person, into the shop because they're a mechanic, into their home because they're a parent, right? They don't need a program. They need a mentor and a person to talk about the particular challenges in their lives. And I think we can provide great news and support for them through our parenting relationships and also through our ministering relationships so that they can really step into that vocation that God's called them to. I appreciate that. Especially that last emphasis on mentoring. That I can't think of a better, a better thing for a, an experienced, more seasoned adult who's been successful in a particular profession and has continued oh. faithful to Christ uh, and meaningfully integrated those two to mentor the next generation of what that would look like. One of the things that we found um, that's, that's pretty important in this is, is to frame vocation correctly theologically. Because uh, I think some of the messages that our students get and our young adults get is that if you really wanted to make your life count for God's kingdom, then you better do something that's earning a paycheck from a church or another Christian organization. Yeah. And so we we try to tell our business students that you know if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in full time ministry. Yeah. And you don't you you don't leave full-time ministry by virtue of changing jobs. You're just simply changing arenas of service. And mm. I try to point out to them that uh, you know the, the Reformers actually gave their lives to eliminate this hierarchy of callings. Um, yeah. So, and that, yeah. I think it's a really important component to that. So 
Um, I, I love that. I think that's so significant. And I think that does something even for the business people. I'll use that as an example in our churches, right? I mean, a lot of times we hit them up for money, but we don't hit them up for mentorship. I mean, exactly. what if we just, you know, raise the bar and said, look, we're all in this together, right? Um, I just think the church is just a wealth of resource for young people. And I just, I don't buy the the narrative that, uh, young people don't care about church and uh, and then all that comes with that. I actually think um, that the church is filled with resource. And if we actually said to young people, we are here for you to support you and mentor you and help you navigate, especially this third decade of life, I think there would be people lining up uh, outside our doors to, to want to be part of, of those types of community. And so it gives me tremendous hope for what the church can be. That's great. Yeah, Stephen, thank you so much, not only for mm-hmm. coming on with us, but for uh, for you and Kara doing this book, Growing With, I want to highly commend this to our listeners. It's great stuff, super insightful stuff, not only about parenting, but also about culture in general. Uh, we're very appreciative for you spelling out a little bit further some of the really important ideas uh, that have come out in the book. Hopefully our listeners will, will uh, take those and and want to see more uh, by getting hold of the book. So again, thank you very much for coming on with us. Really grateful for the time. You took Scott, with us. It's a, Scott, it's a privilege and an honor. Sean, grateful to both of you for your work and grateful for your listeners and uh, for the ways that they're trying to navigate their lives as well. And I just wish you God's grace and peace. Well, likewise. Thanks very much. Thanks. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Stephen Argue, and his book, Growing With, And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.